Hello and welcome to the Red Mountain Community Church podcast, where you can hear conversations with the people of Red Mountain Community Church as we pursue Jesus together. Each episode highlights what God is doing in someone's life or a specific theme in light of what God has revealed in the Bible. I'm Peter Franson from Spirit Blade Productions and your fellow seat warmer at Red Mountain Community Church. My co-host today is Tom Holland, our pastor of young adult. <laughs> Do you, I think I heard, it's no, it's actually Zach Hollyfield. But I did, did you, t- I feel like shortly before you came on staff zach that like i told you that you reminded me of someone but i don't know if it was tom holland or not i I think i heard after the fact that you have gotten tom holland from people i have i there was a junior hire uh a few months ago who i think after the spider the newest spider-man movie or something came out was like hey you look like tom holland and i i barely know what tom holland looks like i've not seen any films with him in it so (laughs) movie stars are usually attractive so i usually just take it yeah Yeah. there you go that's a win i'm trying to remember who I was thinking, because I don't think it was Tom Holland. Do you mm-hmm. remember that exchange with me? Not exactly. No, okay. No. Yeah. No. It was probably weird and awkward and one you wanted to forget. <laughs> and that's fine. That's totally understandable. Um, so uh, Preston did an awesome job hosting last time. So I wanted to tip my hat to him. And uh, he was very kind to say during the episode, Peter, wherever you are, we hope you're feeling better. Um, well, Preston, while I was listening to that, I was on the toilet and shortly after felt much better. So thank you very much. <laughs> I do have to say this though, and this is what I would have I would have mentioned this if I would have hosted that episode about the I mean it wasn't a shark attack it was a killer whale attack story that like when we were I was sick so I wasn't able to, to host that episode um, but as but uh, Arian um, who kind of serves as our uh, producer quote unquote and is in the room with us right now uh, manning the recording station. Uh, but she like sent me information about his story and a link. She said here's a YouTube video with some more information. And I clicked this link. This was not, Arian, a video with more information. This was a video of the attack. Wait, really? Yes. I was, was like, there oh a my warning? Gosh, do I get a trigger warning? Yeah. Or anything? Just like, I, it was, I was watching this presentation of this of, you know, like killer whale show and the narration, the killer whale. Da, 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 da. And then suddenly, you know, I was like, is this, a, is this like someone's going to pop in? Is this a news story from ABC? And they're just showing some B-roll here. I was waiting for something to come in to talk about the, the event. I didn't know I was going to see the event. So <laughs> my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> That's jarring. I <laughs> she's cracking up over here. <laughs> uh anyway, so adventures in podcasting everybody. Nothing like it. Um so, speaking of jaws, I don't know, that's a horrible transition, <laughs> but we've got an irresistible question, Zach, this oh my, time. Okay. And uh, it is, what's one movie that should never be remade? Well, I can think of some really awful ones i don't know that even just the mention of them might get us an explicit rating so i won't mm. mention, <laughs> mention some of those um a movie that should never be remade i mean personally and this is a little it already has been remade but it was a huge mistake with space jam oh um, I, that wasn't a sequel that was a remake that they did or well or was i like guess a, it was a sequel. Well, i mean What's is it a difference? sequel? Is it a remade? It's I mean, basically an NBA star goes yeah. around with Looney Tunes and saves the world. So, yeah. I mean, sequel, but it's also a remake, just putting LeBron James and Michael Jordan. And oh, I just okay. think that genre of like 
reproducing the same kind of movie with just a different athlete or just a different person. Yeah. Just get more creative. Yeah. Just just come up with something new. Yeah. I hate it's just a waste of time. Yeah. Um Yeah. And also I would say Narnia movies. Mm. I just think leave them alone. Mm. I don't know if they've been well done. I don't know if they can be well done. Um so I would say just stay away from my boy Lewis and <laughs> but a but a series I would like to see a movie of is uh or see a series show or a movie is Lewis's space trilogy. Oh, I know. Yeah. They should good. make that into either a three part movie or some kind of TV series. I think it's coming in our lifetime because oh, is it? because I believe maybe in the next maybe ten it maybe I want to say like fifteen or twenty years from now that will hit the public domain. Ah. And then I think people are just going to go nuts and we're going to see all kinds of terrible adaptations. Yeah, it. it's probably not going to be well done, but it it has so much potential if it was. It's just yeah. a great three-part story. I really want to come back to it because I read the first half of the first book when yeah. I was in college and I wasn't in the right headspace for it. I was yeah. like, I want to read nerdy sci-fi that has some you know Christian stuff in it. I wasn't mm-hmm. ready for what that series really is, which is like, no, this is more... It's kind of like the screw tape letters yeah. where it's like this, you really got to be in for the philosophy and the, in the uh, human commentary yeah. with some dressing of the fantastical or the science Absolutely. fiction or whatever. It's an know. apologetic in a sense about like mm. this, like human progress by any means yeah. versus the Christian worldview. It's a, a wonderful. I could talk about that trilogy forever. Oh, sweet. So yeah, cool. you should read it. You should finish nice. it. Nice. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm not really, um, I'm not really precious about things not being remade. Uh, I think that because I've been a comic book fan for most of my life, I've seen how the same character in under different creative control can be hmm. interpreted differently sure. and there can be good things that come from that. And so I kind of feel like, uh, like I, I think as I, the, the older I get, the more I take that lack of expectation into the theater with me and yeah. just say, you know what? As long as it's, I mean, selfishly speaking, as long as it's something that appeals to my tastes, I don't care if you, you know, remake something and it's not like the original mm-hmm. or if it's better, you know, or, uh, or, or, I mean, I'd rather it not be worse, but, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, I don't think I really have a, a preference there, which is very surprising because I have lots of preferences mm-hmm. that I could usually tell you about, about mm-hmm. really weightless things, but... <laughs> Anyway, um, as a reminder, guys, you can message us on Instagram or Facebook with suggestions for fun things that we could do or talk about before the interview. But for now, we are going to move things along. Uh, earlier today, Zach and I spent some time talking with Keith Braun, an elder emeritus at Red Mountain Community Church, just about his life and the various ways that he has uh, devoted himself to the Lord and what God is calling him to do and kind of what motivated specifically those things, which it was really interesting and rewarding to dig into. So I hope that you guys will find that to be the case as well. Here's that conversation now. Well, Keith, thank you so much for sitting in the hot seat, although I shouldn't, I don't think it'll feel too hot. Uh, but I appreciate you taking time out and just being willing to to chat with us. Well, glad to be here. It's an honor to to be here. In fact, and I uh, hope that and pray that you know what is said would just honor the Lord and and uh, would edify our church. Well, I think it will. I've been looking forward to getting into what we're going to talk about and just hearing more um, more of your thoughts and perspective. I mean, you. 
uh, have always struck me as a fairly quiet guy, but you certainly, when there's when there's something to be said, then you'll step into that moment. Um, but I mean, uh, you're not this super blabby, chatty guy. And so this is kind of a neat opportunity for me to kind of hear more about what your thought processes and feelings have been about things in your life. So uh, I'm wondering if you can start by just giving us a snapshot of your life in terms of your immediate family, uh, your work, and what stage of life you're in. Well, I'm now 70 years old. I've been married uh, happily to my wife, Nancy, for most of the 48 years we've been married. (laughs) (laughs) Um, She was the Red Mountain Women's Ministry Pastor from 2001 through 2017, so uh, she's maybe a little more famous than I am. (laughs) We have four uh, adult children. Our oldest one, and I'm going to withhold her her name, is a worker Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. a Muslim country in Mm -hmm. North Africa, along with her family. Uh, Our next child, Julie, uh, lives with her husband, Corey, and, and three sons here in Mesa and attends Red Mountain. And my son, Jeff, uh, lives with his wife, Jenna, and, and, and three kids in the Bay Area around San Francisco, and he works as an engineer. And we had those children the regular way. Okay. And if you get my drift. Yeah. No, um, how is that done? No. Uh, I'm not, <laughs> not going to go into it. Uh, but then we had uh, another child uh, through the adoption process. Uh, mm. Kaylin was adopted from... Uh, Korea, and uh, we were 45 years old when we adopted her, and she lives in San Clemente. Okay. Yeah, I definitely want to circle back to that um, okay. at some mm-hmm. point. Um, yeah. What are you? You're retired now, is that right? Oh yes, I'm. Okay. I'm retired, and I I was an orthopedic uh, surgeon, and uh, enjoyed working with my hands in the medical field, and and now. I still like working with my hands, but mostly on things with four wheels. Okay, nice. Um, when did you, if there is a time you remember, when did you first come to faith in Jesus? How did that come about? I was raised in a Christian home in Burbank, California, and I had one sibling. Uh, her name uh, was Barbara, and she just died uh, last month from mm-hmm. ALS. Uh, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was a, a strong believer, and uh, she um, left a, a real legacy and a great testimony. And we had her memorial service about three weeks ago, and it was just a, a real time of um, joyful sorrow. Mm-hmm. You know, only mm-hmm. a Christian can know what that means. Mm-hmm. Right. And I was by nature uh, a very wild kid, not in the sense of being disobedient, but just daring and uh, way out there in terms of um, what I would do, riding my bike as fast as I could or climbing the highest tree or wandering off in the mountains that were nearby, uh, blowing things up, um, just stuff like that that um, was way out there. And... Uh, my mom was abused by her dad mm-hmm. when she was little, and she um, went on to develop mental illness, and I'm sure I contributed to her 
uh, mental problems, uh, especially anxiety, through mm-hmm. the way I, uh, I chose to live. Um, and I need to talk to you to help me understand my youngest, because it sounds, I mean, he's a daredevil too. So, oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when I was in uh, the fifth grade, fifth grade, she, uh, my mother, uh, attempted suicide by slashing her wrists, mm. and there was blood all over the, the kitchen, and um, uh, she spent a few weeks in a mental hospital. But even though she had mental illness, when she was thinking clearly, um, she was a student of the Scripture, mm. and she chose to obey the commands of Scripture. She chose to uh, be a, a good mother to my sister and I, and uh, she was particularly good at discerning truth mm. and uh, discerning what, what was uh, false, uh, false teaching and why it was false. And she imparted that into, into me. My dad was the most Christ-like man I've ever met. Mm. I really don't recall him ever sinning. <laughs> I'm sure he did, but I never saw it. He was born on Christmas and he died at Easter time, hmm. like somebody I know. And uh, that's the way he lived his. <laughs> <laughs> Took me a second. <laughs> that's, that's the way he lived his life, you know. Wow. And and he nurtured my mom through the the mental mm. uh, problems. And and he was just a a, a great dad. And uh, he just purposed to love uh, her and uh, his family unconditionally, and and uh, and serve uh, in the church. He attended a Mennonite Brethren Church in um, Pacoima, California. Now, Pacoima is like several notches down in the status of cities around the San Fernando Valley. Okay. And it was a Hispanic Anglo church plant. And we met in a farmhouse. And I remember Sunday school in a bedroom, all the kids sitting on a bed. And later, going to Sunday school in a barn. And my uh, Sunday school teacher, who was the pastor's wife when I was seven years old, said, you know, Keith, you really are not a Christian because your mom and dad are strong Christians. It has to be something that's individual, Mm -hmm. and you need to think about that. Mm -hmm. And I did. I went home, and I I thought about it. I remember lying down in bed that night and saying, yep, I think you are right, uh, Sunday school teacher, and... I uh, uh, trusted uh, Jesus as my Savior mm. uh, when I was seven years old at mm. that point. Mm. Um, that's about it for my uh, yeah. so the, conversion story. Yeah, so then uh, fast-forwarding many years after that, you, know, you uh, served on the elder board here at Red Mountain Community Church. Mm-hmm. Um, how long were you on the elder board and, and what kinds of ministries have you been involved in at, at RMCC? Now, we first began to um, attend Red Mountain in 1996. And around that time, God put it in my heart, uh, the desire to serve as an elder. Hmm. And in 1998, uh, the elder board here at Red Mountain asked me to uh, join them. Uh, I had an interest in missions, and I served on the mission subgroup. I think it's now called the sending subgroup of the elder board. 
And I was also secretary of the elder board before Lin- Linda Lindstrom uh, okay. took over doing that. Hmm. And I think that helped me pay attention because <laughs> I knew I had to write it, everything down. <laughs> so I served as a, a governing elder here uh, for 19 years. Hmm. Uh, in 2017, um, I got kicked off the elder board <laughs> because I was 65 years old. <laughs> And uh, that made me a, an emeritus elder. Mm. And you know, a lot of people might criticize um, or, or just question, I should say, Red Mountain for transitioning seasoned elders mm. off the governing board at age 65. But I feel it was, it's a good thing. Uh, I began to notice how the average age of the elder board was creeping up. Mm. And I made this chart on a piece of chart paper with colored pencils and stuff uh, all the elders that ever served at Red Mountain and then I figured out what the average age was and drew a graph and from 1990 when Red Mountain started the average age was about 40 years old Mm. and in uh, 2016 when I made this graph it was um, about 57 Mm. Mm. And some people said, well, let's just add some younger elders. But I projected that as well. And even if you add young men to be elders, it still doesn't halt the progression of the average age. Mm. The only way to keep the average age of the elders in check was to have a mandatory retirement. Mm. So why do we do this? Well, I think we keep, needed to keep the focus of the church, the vision cast for the church by the elder board, directed toward a younger generation. Mm. We don't need crotchety old elders <laughs> that can't recognize when changes need to be made mm. and live in the past. Mm. And that's what older guys uh, tend to do. I think what we need is young, capable leadership, and that will bring in young families. And bringing in young families will make an enduring church. Mm. Mm. And we don't want our church to just get grayer and grayer. Mm. So my first ministry at Red Mountain, um, when I first came in 1996, was uh, uh, taking over the fifth and sixth grade program. Uh, back then, the fifth and sixth graders were not part of the children's ministry, and they weren't part of the youth ministry. Okay, They were their own thing. Uh, so uh, Nancy, my wife... And I did this for 13 years and taught uh, fifth and sixth grade uh, Sunday school. I uh, really love fifth and sixth graders because their brains are starting to develop a little bit. Mm. And they're not, I don't like junior hires so much, (laughs) but I like fifth and sixth graders because they haven't had that attitude of a junior hire Mm. yet. And they're they're really good sponges for teaching Mm. uh, the truth of scripture. And uh, our Sunday school class, we had uh, 1 Peter uh, uh, 3.15 as our our key verse, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So our fifth and sixth grade class became a doctrine class, Hmm. uh, apologetics, and uh, hermeneutics. Not using those big words, sure. of course, but um, that's essentially what what we taught, and uh, I really enjoyed 
uh, doing that. Nancy and I have also taught inductive Bible studies for adults here and there through the years, and uh, we have enjoyed taking uh, you know books of the Bible and letting them speak to us through the observation uh, and interpretation and application uh, process of inductive Bible study. And uh, the women did it quite a bit on Tuesday morning, uh, but for the men, uh, it wasn't really offered here. And uh, uh, we've held five or six of those kind of classes that I'd like to do it again in the spring. I've mm-hmm. been thinking about doing the book of Hebrews, okay. which is kind of scary mm-hmm. to tackle that one. <laughs> oh, that's cool. But now you've also been on multiple medical mission trips to Africa. Uh, what kind of work did you do there? I mean, medical, obviously, but what kind of work did you do there? And what motivated those trips for you? In the fall of 2002, I received a call from a pediatrician friend in Tucson. And uh, he invited me to go to a medical missions conference in uh, North Carolina. And Nancy and I had said long before that, that if the call came to missions, we would say yes, because we already said yes. Hmm. We were just waiting for the call. Hmm. So when that phone call came, I just knew it right then, that this was the, the beginning. God says, yep, you know, now is the time. You already said yes, so I'm going to direct you at this point. So at this conference, we learned of a a Christian missions hospital in Kenya. It's called Tenwick Hospital. And in July of uh, 2003, we went with our six-year-old daughter uh, to Kenya for seven weeks. And it was kind of a crazy time to go because the um, the United States uh, State Department said you shouldn't travel to Kenya Uh, British Air wouldn't fly into Kenya, so we had to go to uh, Uganda and then have a short hop into Kenya because uh, there were threats to the uh, embassy uh, by terrorists at that time. So it was kind of a scary, scary thing. And then I got there and it even got scarier uh, because I was the only orthopedic surgeon uh, for miles and people came out of the woodwork for musculoskeletal uh, care. So I had never worked so hard or done so many weird cases with such primitive equipment. Mm. I don't, you guys remember the TV show MacGyver? Yeah, you know, yeah I do. You know, he takes some pocket knife and yeah. duct tape or something and, and make something that would help him you know, save the world. Mm-hmm. And I, I must have a little bit of MacGyver in me, and God knew that. And uh, I was able to... Um, help a lot of people, fix a lot of people with what seemed like duct tape and bailing wire. Wow. You know, just by real primitive uh, means. Uh, I remember one guy came in with an axe in his head. What? Uh, yeah, I mean, no. like in his head. No. Uh-huh. And he uh, had been in a fight with his um, a brother, that's what happens to brothers in Kenya. When the father dies, they begin to hate each other because of the inheritance squabbles. Oh my goodness. So he comes into the emergency room with an axe in his head, and I get a call, and I, I said, well, I'm really not a, a neurosurgeon. And the guy in the emergency room said, 
You are a bone doctor, Doctori. This axe is in a bone. So uh, I took him to the operating room, yanked the axe out of his head, oh. and um, cleaned all the the crud and uh, uh, blood and hair out, out of his brain um, tissue. Just kind of washed it and gently uh, scraped it, picked <laughs> stuff out, and closed the membrane over the the brain and put laid the bones of the skull back. And then sewed up the the scalp and, uh, and put him on antibiotics and prayed a lot and uh, the guy walked out about three or four days later. What? And he, he was doing pretty good. Yeah. Three to four days. Yeah. Wow. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh my god. So just stuff that that was probably one of the most off the wall things I did when I was in I in Kenya. But oh my um, gosh. Uh, wow. It it was like that. Uh, Every, every day had something that was uh, not too far away from that. <laughs> so now, what? tell me a little bit about the, the motivation. You said that you, that you guys had kind of already said yes to missions beforehand. Um, I mean, were you thinking about the possibility that it could be the stereotypical, we're going to Africa to do missions? Because that, I feel like that's a stereotype. It's like, well... You know, oh, God might call me to be a missionary in Africa, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So did you have that possibility in mind? And whether or not that's the case, what kind of motivated that that yes beforehand? I was uh, uh, serving as the uh, vice president of the Student Missionary Union at Biola University, and we had a, a missionary conference every year, and I, I had a big role in that. And one of the speakers that we had was Luis Palau. Oh, yeah, I know that mm-hmm. name. And he uh, challenged um, everybody that was attending a, a banquet that closed the, the conference to uh, do that thing about saying yes to God uh, beforehand mm. uh, to missions. Mm. Uh, I think he used the illustration of Daniel uh, in the Bible, uh, purposing in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's food. He did that ahead of time. Mm. Then when it came up that the king was trying to feed him all this rich stuff that he wasn't, wasn't kosher or whatever, he had already made up his mind. Mm. And, and that's a, a powerful thing in, in our lives. If we purpose in our hearts to do or not to do certain things and so that was something that we honored when the when the call came to missions Hmm. wow um okay so i want to switch tracks there's so many interesting tracks and that i'm i've been looking forward to covering and (laughs) jumping from one to the other there's no like great slick host transition that i can do for these but we're gonna hit as many as we can because i love these all um so you guys have an adopted daughter you mentioned that at the beginning and you adopted her, you said, in your mid-40s? Yes. So I'm 44 right now, and I'm thinking to myself, what the crap? Seriously, <laughs> that's like, that's that's a thing to take on. How, let's see, what's the age difference between your youngest bio kid and your adopted daughter? 12 years. 12 years, my gosh. Okay, so tell me how that desire appeared and then grew in your minds in your hearts to the point of following through on that when i was 
maybe five or six years old, my parents took me to downtown Los Angeles to the Church of the Open Door to hear the Korean Orphan Choir. Hmm. So they just sang with these angelic voices, and uh, I was impressed with their, their singing, but I also listened to the message afterward that they needed to be adopted. Mm-hmm. And I begged my mom and dad to adopt me a brother because hmm. I didn't have a brother and I wasn't too fond of my sister at that time. <laughs> <laughs> and they, my parents didn't do it. Um, and the memory kind of faded away. Then fast forward to 1996, I think it was in the spring of 96, uh, I was at a nursing home making rounds on a patient there, and a nurse had brought a small Asian child in from China and was showing her co-workers, she had just adopted it, the, the child, and she asked me to examine the child's hips, you know, because... They might bind them up like a papoose or something there, and that's not good for their hips. So I examined the kids' hips. They were okay. And while I was examining the the baby's hips, I heard this voice inside my head that that uh, said, you should do this. You know, you got to be kidding. Uh, I, I don't, I don't uh, think I need another child right now, Lord. Uh, but the thought didn't go away, and uh, a couple days later, I talked to Nancy, and it kind of hit her the same way, and then we talked to our, our uh, bio kids, as you call them, <laughs> the regular way kids, uh, and, and they were, of course, excited about it, and that got the ball rolling, so mm-hmm. Kaylin was born in Korea in September of 1996, and in January of 97, we went to the LA airport and uh, picked her up. Okay, wow. wow. So it wasn't it wasn't the child that you were examining. No, it, but but that was kind of like the trigger. That, that was, was the, the trigger. moment that God seemed to use to plant a thought in your mind, and then you took it to your wife, and you got your kids involved too, and asking them what they yes. thought of it, and they were in support of the idea. Mm-hmm. Wow. And she's been a really blessing, a big blessing to our, our family. We're so glad that she was able to. Uh, uh, join us, and uh, it, it's just uh, been an experience that uh, I felt was uh, God-led from the beginning, and uh, God blessed all the way along. Hmm. Hmm. And does does she sing? I mean, were you hoping for that to work out with the Korean choir, like you bring one of those home? And no, she doesn't sing. Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> I don't even know if she can. Well, you, you <laughs> she's gave, quiet. You gave it a shot. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Um, okay, so having kind of seen several aspects of your life and just how God has moved and, and how you've engaged in in uh, kingdom work and just what he is pulling you to do, between that and what I've been told and what I've also just seen of you over the years, you know, you you seem to have this strong commitment to wholeheartedly serving and giving to the church, giving your life to the Lord in terms of time, energy, resources, and speaking for myself, and I know I'm not alone in this, that perspective and attitude does not come naturally to most, I think, and and even feels alien to a lot of us. 
So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you just develop that attitude and perspective and, and what specifically drives it. Well, I love the church. And I think this love uh, developed a long time ago. Uh, my parents loved and served in the church. And they were very careful not to be critical of the church in front of my sister and I. Mm. And I think that it's often parents that um, uh, are the ones that turn their kids off to the church mm. uh, through their critical spirits and just uh, unthoughtful comments about about the church. And as Nancy and I raised our kids, we were very careful not to do that, but to have a positive reflection uh, about the church in front of them. That's not to say that the church is perfect. Yeah, we know sure. we know it's not, but we we need to be careful not to badmouth uh, the church leadership or the the people in the church uh, because there are brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think that the the love for the church developed a long time ago, and I, I credit my parents for instilling that uh, in me. In uh, 1997, my roommate from college was dying of uh, cancer. I flew back to uh, Chicago uh, to visit him before he died. He was a Christian, but he spent his whole life pursuing wealth and athletic uh, activities, and not a whole lot of time was spent serving the church. And when I visited him, I asked him what he would tell somebody about life now that his was ending, and he said simply, don't waste your time. And I asked what he meant by that, and he says if he could do it all again, he would do the things uh, that would last for eternity mm. instead of the uh, things that were just fleeting. And I, I think he um, reflected what the Bible says in uh, Colossians 4.5 and Ephesians 4.16, I think it is, or 5.16, about redeeming the time. You know, we're put here on earth and given a certain amount of time, and I think we have an assignment uh, that we need to carry out uh, during that time that God uh, gives us, and we, use the, we need to use that time wisely and, uh, thing, and doing things that count for eternity. So, um, you know, we all know life is a ticking clock, I'm reminded of that with my sister's recent death. Mm. And uh, God has chosen us to be ministers of reconciliation to the world, and his uh, means of doing that is through his church, and that's what drives me. Mm. So I was also motivated um, to give and serve, give to and serve the church uh, through the wisdom of the book of Ecclesiastes. Mm. Uh, you know, we look at uh, life from an under-the-sun or earthly perspective, and nothing we do really matters, so, you know, why give time to the church? But if we look at things from God's perspective, uh, everything we do matters. Uh, the, the book closes, uh, you know, by saying, uh, God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. And I just um, think that uh, uh, I, I want to live a life that is not wasted. Mm -hmm. And uh, God has chosen the church as his instrument to 
reconcile the world and I want to be a part of that work. Mm. Mm. Um, I remember, uh, I don't know if it was in high school or college, but there was at some point that I was at your house for, I don't know, we were getting ready to, I almost want to say that it was getting ready for a garage sale or there's some kind of activity that was going on at your house. That, I don't know if that sounds like a thing that would have happened, but we were over there uh, for some reason and uh, it was a nice house. I don't know if you're still living in the same house or not. You are? Okay. Um, so it was a nice house and I, you know, I assume fit your family needs, but uh, I think I could see even then knowing that you were a doctor, given your profession, that you were living very humbly and well below your means as a doctor. And, um, and obviously that gives you opportunity, which I know you've used, um, but not broadcast, uh, (laughs) to, to give resources to the church and, and other things that, that serve God. I just wonder, has that mode of life come naturally to you? Um, and if so, kind of what's, what do you think has contributed to that? Or have there been any times where you felt a conviction to give in terms of either time or resources in a way that you resisted or really, really found difficult? Our, our house cost $230,000 in 1992. It sounds pretty cheap now. <laughs> and it was a real blessing and uh, more than adequate for the, the needs of our family. I wouldn't say, though, that we were living well below our means. Oh, okay. Um, You know, there are are doctors that are rich, but I think a lot of them are are workaholics. Mm. And they just spend so much time away from their family, and and I don't think they're involved in the the church. And um, in, in reality, a doctor has a choice of how many hours he's going to spend uh, working and I, I kind of chose to limit mine to 40 to 50 hours a week. Okay. And some of that was at night, so my family was just sleeping soundly while I was off <laughs> working. But um, uh, I made maybe two thirds of the amount that my partner was was making because he he chose to see more patients and take more call and just work harder. So. Uh, I wanted to spend more time with my family and uh, 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 be able to have time for church, too. So mm. it was a good job uh, being a doctor, but it um, uh, it wasn't something that, that made me rich. I had enough money that I was not concerned uh, too much about how I was going to provide, but I didn't have too much money that uh, would bring along frustrations and mm-hmm. temptations. Yeah. You know, so I tried to keep that income right in the middle. That choice still speaks to, I think, what I'm getting at. Because like you said, that's not necessarily typical of what a lot of doctors would choose. I mean, your, no, I your, think... your potential income was significantly more than what you chose for it to be. And so I'm, I'm really interested in, in kind of that, that choice. Yeah, that would be true, I think. I, I could have um, worked harder and made more. But we were able to support the church uh, financially. Red Mountain has never been a church that had any big sugar daddies, mm. you know, that mm. gave millions of dollars for programs and, mm. and buildings and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we often say that we're Costco uh, kind of folks. Mm. And uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, Nancy and I have been uh, 
part of that giving core uh, for for many years. We haven't been money hoarders Mm -hmm. saying that, oh, we're going to work hard and invest and keep this money and someday we'll give it to the church. We gave as the Lord prospered us. Mm -hmm. So we never just accumulated a a ton of wealth. Um, And sometimes it's not easy to give, though. You know, I covet things more than I'd like to. Mm. Sometimes when I can't sleep, I imagine that I have a huge garage, like Jay Leno, (laughs) and I I make a list of all the the cars and trucks and motorcycles that I'd like to have in my huge garage that doesn't exist. (laughs) I do the same thing for... uh, uh, guns that I'd like to collect. Mm-hmm. I like cowboy guns <laughs> from the 18, 1800s. Oh, wow. And, and it's just you know, a form of, of coveting. And, but looking back, I, I think I've indulged in more of the pleasures of the world uh, than I'd like to have done. Mm. I feel like Oscar Schindler in that movie Schindler's List, toward the end, he's looking at the rings on his finger and his mm-hmm. big Mercedes. And he's saying, I could have helped free Jews from death mm. if I wouldn't have bought this stuff. Mm. And I, I clung to it instead. And I think, um, you know, I, I feel somewhat the same way now that I'm 70 years old that I could have and still could give more uh, to God's work, because we are rescuing people, in a sense, from mm. spiritual death. Mm. And that's even more important than the work that Oscar Schindler you know, was, was doing. Mm. So um, it's, uh, it's something that uh, you can always do more. Mm. Yeah. Um. And yet, you know, even as I, I, I kind of hear the, the the tension in recognizing I can do more, but ultimately when we hit that moment of decision, that's really hard. You know, I mean, that call to be generous, to be self-sacrificing in those moments, it's a bit like God asking us to walk out onto the skinny branch of a tree with him. And it's scary. And we wonder if we're going to fall and get hurt. And so I, I'm, I'm wondering how... Have you experienced, as you made some of those kind of skinny branch choices, how have you experienced God's care and providence for you as you've committed various things to him in your life? Well, that's kind of a hard one to answer, you know, because we can't see everything that our sovereign God Mm -hmm. has done for us in our lives, Mm -hmm. how he has provided and and all that stuff. It's sometimes hard to, to see that. You know, you can look at it one way and, um, and, and say, yeah, you know, I've committed and trusted the Lord and he's provided throughout my whole life. You know, it's, um, I, I look back and, and once in medical school, we were down to our, our last Twinkie and um, didn't know where the next meal was really going to come from. And Nancy's grandfather gave us $5,000 mm. and that saw us through that that time and uh, uh, we could say that that the Lord provided for and supplied all our needs but there's there's another scenario I I can look back and 
on my life and say, hey, I was a doctor, I had a good job, and I had enough money, and I really didn't get to the point where I crawled out on the skinny branches at all. Hmm. I was able to stay on the fat branches, the secure branches, and still have enough money to be generous and appear to everybody else, like I fooled you maybe, <laughs> uh, in in appearing self-sacrificial. Hmm. And um, my hunch is that that second scenario is, is more true. I think if, if I did live my life again, I would make it a point to crawl out on the skinny branches mm-hmm. a bit more. Mm-hmm. Because I was, I was sticking pretty close to the trunk of the tree. Mm. It just didn't look like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate your humility and perspective on your own life. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for just being willing to open up and let me dissect your brain and your thoughts a little bit. This is really like an ax in the brain. Oh gosh. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. Won't forget that anytime soon. You don't like that picture in your head, huh? Well, and I'm guessing he lost with the brother, like the the other brother got the inheritance. I don't know. Well, that was maybe it was a hate to see the other. Yeah. You think this is about hate to see the other guy kind of situation. So yeah, hopefully not. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, thank you so much for taking the time and doing this, Keith. Really, really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And uh, greetings to all the, the podcasters out there that are listening. Well, that was, man, I feel like there was a, a bunch of different threads that we could have tugged at for longer. Each one could have been an hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In and of itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, like, as we said, between recording, that was like all killer, no filler. That was like just some great stuff to dig into. Um, so what would be maybe one thing that particularly stands out to you from our time talking to Keith? I think the thing I'm most struck by is Keith's just devotion to the local church Hmm. as like young adult pastor here, like, and just as myself as 28 years old, I, I want to be just a church person, Hmm. someone who serves the church, has a genuine, true love for not just this global church that we do love, but an actual local realized outcropping of it. Yeah. And I want to produce those in, in young adults. And so thinking of someone who spent 70 years, you know, or 60 from when he became a Christian, of just loving and serving and being devoted to uh, a local manifestation of the bride of Christ. I, I'm just encouraged by that, that that happens, that that's possible, that the spirit produces that in people. And, um, it just gets me geeked up and, and passionate about pursuing that myself and hopefully discipling, um, those I'm charged with towards that. So I think that's overall what has struck me the most. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, it was seeing, and this is just cause I, I have a tendency toward darker thoughts anyway but I mean, <laughs> but i mean his the, the connection between his motivation in, in terms of like like how he just wanted to what motivated him to give and to invest in the church in the work of the lord mm-hmm. there was a, a couple of things connected to mortality that fed into that but one certainly was his talk with his friend yeah. his, his roommate you know and so he had uh, at that time, this 
this greater sense. And he said, you know, commenting now, I think he also said in the, the wake of his sister's passing, he just mentioned these touchstones of mortality that mm. gave him perspective yeah. on life and how he wants to use these short few years that we have. Yeah. And that's, you know, mortality is something I've, I'm 44 now and I've been kind of processing it really intently since turning about 38 or so. And I think that's just going to continue. Mm. And it really, it really does bring clarity and focus to uh, life and make some things that seemed big seem much smaller and some things that should seem bigger. It does bring into focus more. And I just wish that like, that I could have started having that kind of process, Mm. that awareness of mortality Mm. earlier in life, you know, um, because we just we're surrounded by depictions of death in our fiction and our entertainment and stuff like that. But we're not really in Western society, uh, up close and personal with death like right. like people are in third world countries and in the past mm-hmm. you know where it was much more common at younger ages to be you know right up close to death yeah. now it's happens off in hospitals and we often miss it right. you know we get to avoid it um so just hearing how how death and mortality really played a role in that i was just like yeah man mm-hmm. I, man how 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 can we get better as a as a, a people as christians at processing those kinds of things earlier and allowing them to really have their weightiness and yeah. impact that we so often, I think, want to escape from. Hmm. Um, anyway, yeah, great, man, there's, there's, there's so much there. Anyway, yep. um, but that is it for this time, I think, for this episode of the Red Mountain Community Church podcast. You can follow Red Mountain Community Church on Instagram and Facebook, where you can also leave us comments and suggestions to help make the show better. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening so you don't miss out on the next episode. In the meantime, I'm Peter Franson. And I'm Zach Hollyfield. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on Sunday. Mm-hmm.